Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, it's been a wonderful weekend of boxing, but it's also been show, show shad. It's a difficult few days, not least for those who've had to listen to their friends and loved ones doing very very bad Sean Connery impersonations. <laughs> are you are you a friend or a loved one for me? Either way, <laughs> you are doing it very bad. Probably probably neither at this point. <laughs> you were until until I heard that Sean Connery impression. I just hope that before he died, Sean Connery did get one chance to say the name Leo Santa Cruz. <laughs> that's that's a name that was made for Conneryization. I feel. Yes. Um, did did Sean Sean Connery voice imitation really exist before Daryl Hammond and Celebrity Jeopardy? Like, I, I think it, I think it did actually, because okay. it was just it was just so. Yeah, it was so distinct. I I think it probably did. That was kind of what I was thinking. That I assumed it existed, but. I feel like that those sketches pushed it to a place where everybody does a mediocre Connery voice, right. us included. Um, I actually had an unusual introduction to the work of Sean Connery as uh, Roger Moore was Bond when I became aware of James Bond movies in the early to mid 80s. And I saw one or two of the Roger Moore movies. And then I saw Never Say Never Again. So mm-hmm. to me, initially, Sean Connery was that washed old guy who wasn't so young and handsome and cool enough to be James Bond. Uh, then before long, we rented some of the early Bond movies and I saw him in his prime. And let's be honest, any take other than Connery was the best Bond yeah, is, is, a, is a pretty bad take. Uh, but of course, he, he had other iconic roles and, and one that stands out for me is uh, Indy's dad in Last Crusade. <laughs> and my favorite, most repeated Connery line is, we named the dog Indiana. Uh, and my, my wife and I considered naming our first dog Indiana, actually, just because ah. of that. But he didn't look like an Indiana or an Indy, so we went with Rodney. Not very close yeah. to Indy or Indiana. But uh, yeah, uh, th- this, is, this is sad. R.I.P. Sean Connery. Uh, I would love to pile on with another Screw You 2020 uh, but, you know, he was 90 years old. He was 90. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this one's forgivable. I won't blame 2020 for this one. Yeah. Now, the sad thing also is the realization that when Sean Connery was playing Washed James Bond in Never Say Never Again, he was actually my age now. It's just <laughs> oh, disturbing. Man. It's just, yeah, there you go. Oh, wow. Just, yeah. and, and you're both, uh, him at that time and you now, older than Wilfred Brimley when he made Cocoon. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Oh, well, yeah, what's he going to do? My other Sean Connery favorite movie was with him and Michael Caine and The Man Who Would Be King, which I absolutely loved when I was younger. And then I saw it a few years ago and realized how incredibly poorly it had aged in mm. many, many respects, given that it is based on a novel by the ultimate imperialistic uh, English author. And I'm like, oh, my God, this movie's horribly racist. I can't believe that I really like this. But it was a fantastic performance by both uh, Sean Connery and Michael Caine. But, hmm. I um, am not familiar with the film. And uh, now I have uh, mixed feelings about whether I want to see it. Is yeah, it's 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 worth seeing for Sean Connery and Michael Caine. Okay, and there's a brief character, there's a brief appearance by a character called Private Mulvaney. So there you go. Oh well, okay. Now I'm in. That tips okay. that tips me from being on the on the fence. Uh, I, I I shall watch this movie. There you go. All right, Look, that's more than enough banter and shenanigans. Uh, we've got a lot to get on with here today. Yeah. We've got a we've got a busy podcast. Uh, it was an extremely busy weekend of boxing. Uh, coming up. We will look at Alexander Usyk's decision win over Derek Chisora, Jaime Munguia's sixth round stoppage of Toriano Johnson, Oya Inoue crushing a game at Jason Maloney in the seventh round. But first, we go to San Antonio, Texas, where on Saturday night on Showtime pay-per-view, Javante Davis and Leo Santa Cruz put on a tremendous fight in front of an actual real live crowd of just under 10,000 at the Alamo Dome before Davis ended matters with a devastating sixth-round knockout delivered by a left-hand uppercut. Uh, The knockout was sudden and brutal. Santa Cruz was unconscious the moment it landed. But up until that point, Santa Cruz was having arguably the best round of what was a pretty even fight. Eric, how did you see the fight at the time of the stoppage? And what about the whole fight, if anything, surprised you? So It was a close fight. Either guy could have been ahead three rounds to two through five. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, all three judges favored Javante by that margin. But yeah, basically, it was an even fight until the bomb detonated. So what surprised me? I mean, 
nothing was too shocking. I, mm. I, I wouldn't say the fight followed the script because there were several possible scripts in play here, but it adhered fairly closely to a script, to one of the possible scripts. Uh, and in fact, it was roughly the script you and I were going with in our predictions, other than the fact that it ended a couple of rounds earlier than we predicted. But basically, close fight. And then Davis breaks through for the stoppage. So the result, Davis KO6 in a good close fight was perfectly in line with the range of expectations. But there were some small surprises along the way. Let's start with the pre-fight surprise. Jose Santa Cruz Sr. comes into the ring with his son. If that didn't give you the hashtag feels, you might be dead inside. Mm -hmm. Um, Another small surprise how singularly focused Tank was on looking to land the left uppercut. Yeah. All fight long, that was his goal. And of course, he achieved it in the sixth. Um, I'd say I was a tiny bit surprised by how confident Santa Cruz seemed early on. He didn't seem worried about Davis's power. He was in the pocket doing his thing, letting his hands go a reasonable amount. And his early success was clearly frustrating, Javante. That Mm -hmm. moment in round two where he threw Leo to the canvas... That was pure frustration there. Mm-hmm. Another minor surprise, how many obviously low blows Santa Cruz landed and didn't get a warning for, and then Davis landed one low blow in round six, and the fight was paused <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to address it. Um, and then one last little surprise after the fight. We're eight months into this pandemic, and Javante Davis still doesn't know how to wear a mask. Uh, if you saw the South Park pandemic special, uh, which wasn't that good, but I watched it, um, they had a running gag about chin diapers, and uh, Gervonta was doing the chin diaper. If you're not going to cover your mouth and nose, don't wear the mask at all. Uh, I noticed at the end he just like, ah, screw it, and just took the whole thing off. Yeah, it's well, just, just right. as effective. Exactly. <laughs> so those are all of my highly important small picture thoughts, <laughs> and I will get to some big picture thoughts shortly. But first, let me let you chime in. What about either fighter particularly impressed you? Obviously, Davis is the main story and is getting the praise the day after the fight, and deservedly so. But I would say Santa Cruz gave an excellent account of himself in there as well. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, he absolutely did, and I. Both fighters impressed me in different ways. Um, you know, I think one of the things that impressed me with both guys, you know, for all the talk about weight, you know, including whether Davis would look drained or Santa Cruz too small, I thought that both looked really strong and in superb condition. Mm-hmm. Um, look, maybe the Santa Cruz team's belief that Davis was just going to fall off a cliff after six rounds would have proven true. Um, we don't know. Right. Um, but he certainly looked like he had the ability to keep going a while. I, I was you know, impressed by Santa Cruz's ability to force Davis back at times, especially early. Um, you know, this is sort of follow on from that point you were making. You know, there were times that his straight combinations and flurries were really on point. And, you know, we sort of predicted that maybe Davis would be a bit taken aback by some of the punches that Santa Cruz is going to land on him. And he was, as you said, um, mm-hmm. you know, and when Santa Cruz is able to force Davis under the back foot, he, w- he was really able to take charge of the fight and, and, and set terms of space and distance and pace. Um, and even as it appeared, his punch output was maybe dropping and Davis was taken over. He stepped it up a gear and, and as we said, was having his busiest and most effective round um, in the sixth. And was even lumping Davis's eye up. I was impressed with that, with the fact that he was able to stand in there in the pocket um, and actually really, you know, leave his mark on Javante. Mm-hmm. Um, he also nullified, you know, Davis tried to throw the jab a little bit when he was trying to figure out how to deal with what Santa Cruz was throwing at him. But Santa Cruz nullified that really well. Um, it's never been Davis's most effective weapon, but he would generally land a couple of fight of jabs around. But in this fight, he landed, according to CompuBox, zero in round one, two in round two, two in round three, and then zero for the rest of the fight. Wow. Um, but, you know, to flip to what impressed me about Davis, you know, his power punches have always been his bread and butter. Um, and here he actually in arguably his biggest fight of his career, actually exceeded his career averages. Um, entering the fight, he landed 49.6% of his power shots, which is a really high figure. On Saturday night, he landed 55, 54.8%. Um, his body work was really key, um, really impressive. Uh, you know, normally 36% of his connects body punches. On Saturday night, it was a little over 40%. Um, so... You know, I think the other thing also that impressed me with Davis was his defense. I thought he was rolling quite a lot, quite well with some of those Santa Cruz flurries. I was really impressed at times with some of his head and shoulder movement. He just looked lighter and smoother generally than I've seen him for a while. And and I think because of that, he was able to keep Santa Cruz's connects below his, 
usual average. I, I think I think it was on the Friday pod, podcast when we were giving our predictions. I, I think I said something along the lines that we knew more about Santa Cruz at this level than Davis. We still didn't know if Davis could really deliver a first-rate performance against a top-tier foe. That we hadn't seen that yet. I, I think we've seen it now. I, I mean, it's okay still to know. As a footnote, yes, he was facing a guy who had previously only once fought above 126 pounds. That's a perfectly reasonable footnote to affix. But even with that caveat, I felt that so far, this is by some distance, Javante Davis's career best performance. And of course, he capped it with a highlight reel KO. Yeah. Um, and same as you, I mean, the very first note that I made on the fight early in round one was, boy, Davis is trying to land that counter left uppercut. <laughs> that was the very first thing I wrote. Like you said, he was just dialed in and focused in on that. That's what he wanted to be as money punch. So it proved, um, it was certainly a hellacious and spectacular knockout. Knockout of the year so far. Uh, yeah, I, 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 think, so. I think so. Um, it, it has my vote as of now and will be pretty difficult to surpass. Um, but even though I quickly said yes, the fact is it's it's not such an easy decision because mm. this is a very close three-way race yeah. and, and you can make a case for the other two. In most years, any of these three would be good enough to be named knockout of the year. The other two, of course, are Zepeda, KO5, Branchik, and Povetkin, KO5, White. And apologies to something like George versus Escudero, which seemed a possible KO of the year candidate right. at the time. You said that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but not anymore. It's, uh, it's off the radar at this stage. Um, it's very close for me between Davis Santa Cruz and Pavekin White. They were both sudden one-punch KOs, one-uppercut KOs specifically. There's not a lot to separate them. Pavetkin came from behind, whereas Davis came from basically even. But I lean toward the Davis KO one because of the excitement of the moment. We, we just had a great exchange in a wild sixth round that is going to be a fringe contender for round of the year, one of a couple of round of the year candidates we saw on this card. Uh, two, because this was a slightly bigger fight than the one between two middle of the top 10 heavyweight veterans. Mm. And three, because the way Santa Cruz crumpled was slightly yep. more aesthetically, oh my God, with apologies to Emmanuel <laughs> Stewart. Um <laughs> The uppercut knockout video posted by the Showtime Twitter account is at more than 10,000 retweets as of this recording. Uh, it wow. went pretty darn viral. I think it's the KO of the year by a sliver. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, as you were just saying uh, in repetition of what I had said about how he was doing it from the beginning, it's it's kind of cool to rewatch the fight and see again how Javante was just looking for that counter left uppercut the whole time. And uh, as we saw, it, it only takes one. Beautiful stuff. Uh, you know, Gervonta Davis got exactly the sort of win he needed. Because it wasn't over in just a round or two, it took six rounds, and Santa Cruz stood up to him and, and fought so well and proved he belonged. To me, it, it's hard to attach asterisks to this. It yeah. was a really good fight. Davis overcame some challenges, and he prevailed with an explosive KO. And I find it hard to come away from that saying, well, Santa Cruz was too small. This proves nothing Javante cherry picked him. No, Javante is a great puncher and a skillful boxer too. And he landed the punch he was looking for and his power is legit. And if that punch lands that way against a career lightweight, it has the same effect. I'm pretty sure Uh, this wasn't Amir Khan getting starched by Canelo. Although there are some similarities between the fights, but you know, you say, well, Khan was always chinny. That was inevitable. This result didn't feel inevitable. Davis had to work for it and made it happen against an outstanding fighter. And afterward, Davis said he's interested in fighting at both 130 and 135 pounds going forward, and he certainly has plenty of would-be opponents calling him out, like Ryan Garcia and Teofimo Lopez, not to mention Devin Haney. I mean, this weight range is loaded with extremely talented, extremely young fighters. This could be a real golden age about to dawn, but those guys are all at 135. Do you believe we, that we might see Gervonta at 130 again, or do you think his future is at 135 and above? And if it was up to you, what's the fight you'd want to see for him next? And he guesses who he actually will fight next. And also, quickly, what, what's next, do you think, for Leo Santa Cruz? You know, judging by the nervousness they showed on the scales and before the actual weigh-in, it was still... Uh, they were still uncertain, the Davis team, about their ability to make 130 pounds, uh, even though they did make it. Uh, but 
I, th- I just thought he looked really good. Um, he, he didn't look to me like in any way that he drained himself to do it. It, it looked right. like, wow, you know, this is a good weight for him. I, I don't know that we had fight night weights, did we? Uh, so I don't know what he what he yeah, grew into. But but his camp, you know, that brought him in at 129.8, he, he looked, I thought, he just looked lighter on his feet and trimmer than he's done. You know, maybe... Um, like Abner Morris said the other day on the podcast, maybe the pandemic has been good for him because it forced him to knuckle down and work in the gym. Right. But um, there are two reasons, nonetheless, why I suspect we're more likely to see him at 135 than 130. One is that he just seems like he's just psychologically more comfortable making that higher weight. And and you also touched on the second one. Uh, it feels that there's a greater abundance of opposition five pounds north. Um, look, the fight to be made right now, all of a sudden, is Teofimo Lopez and Javante Davis. I don't know how the hell it gets made. Um, Bob Aram is presumably going to scrutinize the pay-per-view numbers. And if they in any, if that pay-per-view in any way underperforms, he's going to leap all over it as evidence that Davis can't sell, that Lopez is the biggest star, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if that fight could get made, it would have to be, you know, obviously an ESPN, PBC co-production of some kind. But that's starting to become enough of a regular thing that that doesn't necessarily feel like it's the same element of roadblock that it was, that it right. felt like even just a year or so ago, right? Um, so, you know, and sometimes you think, well, these are two young guys that so they have to do it now. I don't know. They're both pretty hot right now. Um, there is the issue that Lopez wants to move up to 140 and fight the Josh Taylor, Jose Ramirez winner. But... He's going to have to wait a while for that because they've still got to fight each other apart from anything else. Um, as you mentioned, Ryan Garcia went in on it too, on, on Javante too, if he gets past Luke Campbell. Uh, Garcia to this point, as good as I think he is, has done nothing in the ring to merit that opportunity, but it's the 21st century and he has a massive social media following. So it's a very saleable fight. Um, there could be Boku books to be made. Again, depends on Garcia's situation with Golden Boy and his own. Um, Devin Haney, you know, although that feels like that seemed like a fight to be made a while back, and I know it's one that we talked about last year, it feels like Haney slipped to the back of the line a little bit right now. He's, he's continuing to turn in really good in-ring performances, but I'm not sure that he's quite broken through in terms of the public awareness that I'm not sure he brings as much. His risk-reward ratio might be a little bit skewed at the moment. Yeah. So, um, so I'm not sure that, you know, he's up next. There are some fights to be made at 134, and Miguel Burchell leaps out as an obvious possibility, but I'm not sure if there's enough money in that to get the two the promoters and, and broadcasters together. One fight at 130 that does seem like it could be interesting and doable is Gary Russell Jr. Hmm. Um, again, Davis would get criticism from some corners for taking on a, quote, smaller man yet again. He'd roll with that. Um, whether Russell wants that to be his annual fight, who knows? <laughs> right. But he did seem perfectly willing to go up to 135 to take on Haney. I mean, he was he was lobbying for that. And this, it's a matchup that has the added advantage of being Washington, D.C. against Baltimore. So right there in that media market, that's going to be huge. Um, and, you know, Leonard Ellerby, a proud D.C. native, would be all about that. So so that's, you know, maybe 130 possibility at 130. But. Shoot, if if Lopez and Davis could be made, that's just a huge fight. As for Santa Cruz, I'd like to see him take a little rest. Sure. Honestly. Spend some time with his dad and his family. He's at this stage, he has nothing to prove to anybody. This next stage of his career is entirely what he wants it to be. He's entirely entitled to take a sweet time, decide where he wants to go next, whether he wants to drop back down to one twenty six or stay at one thirty. He looked really solid at one thirty. Mm-hmm. I can't see him taking that muscle weight off comfortably back to 126. He looks like he's made the commitment to 130 and he's there now to me. I mean, he he fits that frame very nicely at that weight, I thought. Um, I suspect he's there, but, you know, for a bit, but nobody, sh- nobody should be rushing him into making that decision. And, but you know what? I tell you what, if Davis Russell doesn't happen, Russell Santa Cruz would be a hell of a fight. Yeah. Um, that'd be a fantastic fight. And I'd certainly be up for seeing that. But, as far as I'm concerned, let Leo Santa Cruz take his time, take a relatively low-key fight or two if he wants to, and then he's in position to take whatever final run at a world title he wants to. Yeah, I, I agree. And just the, uh, the the decision between 130 and 135 for Javante will be really interesting because yeah. what this outcome suggested to me is that Javante 
is actually at his best when he works his ass off and gets down to 130. Good point. So, Absolutely. you know, I, yeah. yeah, I wonder if a 135 limit will allow him to not work quite as hard or, or to let yeah, himself blow point. up more between fights. So whoever he's fighting, this version of Gervonta Davis is the yep. one I'd like to keep seeing. Absolutely. I yep, completely agree. Um, the co-main event saw San Antonio native Mario Barrios thrill the crowd with a six-round knockout of fellow Texan Ryan Cowboy Carl uh, at 140 pounds. Carl was overmatched, but damn, he was game. Um, he actually didn't have a bad first couple of rounds. He, he came up Barrios with, with uh, the aggression that we kind of expected him to, but Barrios never looked even remotely flustered, uh, began banking body shots early to slow Carl down, and then really started steadily cranking up his punch quantity and quality. Um, by the fifth, I noticed Carl was not only holding on, but he was looking up at the clock, you could tell, to see how much time was left in the round. Uh, and then in the sixth, oh my God, everything turned against the poor kid all at once, bloody hell. Barrios dropped Carl, Carl got to his feet, Referee Luis Pabon was like, do you want to continue? And he very definitively said, absolutely, 100%. But he was clearly buzzed, didn't really have the the skill or at that point necessarily the clarity to hold on very easily. He tried to fight back, and then that, all of a sudden, there's a clash ahead, and there's blood everywhere. Um, So on top of everything else, he probably couldn't even really see the target he was trying to hit. Ringside physician let it continue for a bit. Um, Carl actually even managed to find a couple of good right hands to land. Uh, But then his face was a mess and he crumbled again um, from a Barrios onslaught, dropped to his hands and knees and then rolled over. And that was all she wrote. Um, Carl falls to 18 and three with 12 KOs. Barrios improves to 26 and over 17 KOs. Class ultimately told. Again, this was what we predicted, although we both got the rounds slightly wrong. But for what was ultimately a pretty one-sided fight, this was fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it really was. I, I couldn't quite find a round to give to Carl, but right. it was competitive all the way, nevertheless, entertaining all the way, and it culminated in a sixth round that goes somewhere on the list of round of the year honorable mentions. Uh, Carl is not a championship-level talent. He's kind of gangly, sort of mm. built like a red-haired Woody from Toy Story, um, but he's <laughs> he's game, and he's gutsy, and he's not afraid to take one to land one, and ultimately, what he is is a really fun TV fighter at the level below world class. 25 years ago, he would have been a staple on USA Tuesday Night Fights. Right? He would have fought like three or four times a year headlining Tuesday Night Fight shows. Um, There's no reason he shouldn't be opening up Showtime broadcasts going forward, as long as he isn't in against super elite opponents. Uh, I I would love to watch him just slug it it out with somebody uh, in opening bouts for the next several years. And, you know, his charisma really comes through, whether it's the moment you mentioned, you know, the ref asking him if he wants to continue and him being like, yeah, for sure, 100 <laughs> um, percent, or the way he was smiling and saluting the crowd as he left the ring while trying to plug up the leak in his head. Um, it was quite a sight. But, uh, yeah, he, his stock goes up despite losing every round and getting stopped. But I suppose I ought to say something about the guy who won Mario Barrios, who (laughs) stayed poised and did his thing. I liked his body shots. He got to show a variety of punches, the left uppercut, the counter left hook, the overhand, right? He's really a natural counter puncher. He seems to prefer that role over being made to lead. Um, Look, Barrios has a lot left to prove. This was obviously a good matchup for him, much more conducive to making him look good than Akhmadov was. Um, and I wouldn't mind seeing an Akhmadov rematch, of course. But, Indeed. you know, ultimately, no losers in this fight. Both fighters advanced along the respective paths that they're on. Yeah. And uh, Regis Progre is another fighter from this undercard who impressively advanced along the path he's on. You and I both picked him to beat Juan Araldez in the evening's second bout. But we both thought Araldez would be awkward enough and skilled enough to survive until the final bell. This was decidedly incorrect. (laughs) Progre landed 28 of 50 power punches, a 56% connect rate, and limited Araldez to just 12 total connects, six of them jabs, in two and a half rounds. The fight ended in the third when Progre decked Araldez with a hard left hand, 
And although Araldes made it to his feet, he was clearly out of it and didn't protest at all when the fight was halted after a follow-up barrage from Progray, which included a digging right hand to the body. Uh, it was stopped at 123 of the round, allowing Progray to get the hell out of there and go watch his daughter, Carrie Mathis, yeah. Progray be born. Um, Kieran, how impressed were you with this performance from Progray? What would you like to see him do next? And how good does Josh Taylor's win over him look right about now? Yeah, look, I was very impressed. Look, even though we both agreed that Progray was levels above Araldez, I, I think we both said something to the effect of this was perhaps the easiest fight to pick the winner. Right. Um, blasting him out of there was still really impressive. Yep. Um, I must say, at first, I thought he was being a little bit left-hand happy. You know, I'm, I part of, sort of wanted him to settle down and, and jab his way in a bit more. But in the same way that Javante Davis knew exactly what he wanted to land and how effective it would be, so did Regis Progray. He had a plan, and he was very relaxed. Uh, the whole way through. I mean, he clearly saw what he wanted to do and he, and he just went out there, there and executed. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it underlined just how good Josh Taylor is. And, and, but also, you know, Progre isn't entirely off base with the idea that had that fight been in the United States, he might have gotten the win. I have no problem with Josh Taylor having had gotten the win, but it was a close fight. Um, mm. It will be a reminder if he does stick around at 140 that whoever wins between Taylor and Ramirez will still have some unfinished business to take care of. Um, you know, in the meantime, Mo Hooker trolled him a little on Twitter after he missed weight, you know, just posted a little video of him eating popcorn, um, <laughs> which I thought was nice. Uh, that was a matchup that was scheduled uh, to take place, uh, was delayed by COVID. Uh, that's a Still a very good matchup, um, although I think I'd make Progray a pretty solid favorite going into that. Yeah. There was some talk also about the notion of maybe our 240-pound winners on Saturday night going against each other, but I don't think Mario Barrios is ready for that. Um, it would be an interesting fight, but I'd make Progray a pretty big favorite, I think, in that yeah. matchup. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but no, I thought it was a very impressive performance by Progray, and, and yeah, and to go in there, keep his focus... Um, and then, like you said, a, a pretty darn good weekend, all one way or the other for Regis Progray, I would say. All right, in the opener, apparently Isok Cruz uh, needed just, I think it was 53 seconds to knock down Diego Magdaleno twice and knock him out. Um, first in a uh, series of left-hand uppercut KO finishes on Saturday <laughs> night. Um, moved to 21-1 and one with 15 KOs. Magdaleno falls to 32-4 and four with 13 KOs and now three defeats by KO. And he's probably now done, I would say. Um, as we talked about, I think, on Friday, Magdalena had considered retirement after losing to Teofimo Lopez. You and I both said that we didn't think his body looked great at the way in. So was this blowout a sign that Magdalena was shot? Or is that actually being terribly unfair to Cruz, who clearly came with a plan, stormed out of his corner to execute it as swiftly and emphatically as possible? And does this incredibly emphatic win mark Cruz as a serious contender now in that 135-pound division? Yeah, to me, this very brief outing uh, tells me more about Cruz than it does about Magdaleno. Look, Magdaleno might well be shot, and I would be very happy to see him announce his retirement now. But I can't say for sure that he's shot. I mean, Cruz just overwhelmed him. That was an all-out assault. He never gave Magdaleno a chance to settle in at all. Sometimes that means a guy is shot. Like, I think of uh, David Tua, KO1, Michael Moore, where mm. you weren't totally sure about Moore beforehand, and afterward, you knew. It's over. But, you know, plenty of other guys have gotten caught early and lost badly and come back. I just don't want to lose sight uh, of how impressive this was from Isak Cruz. Mm -hmm. He was hammering away to the body. Uh, you said left uppercut. I think it was actually a double right uppercut uh, for oh. the knockout, although, honestly— all the uppercuts and knockouts are a bit of a blur from this weekend, so I could be mixed up. I'm not sure. But it was also it was set up by two body shots. He did exactly what a little guy named Pitbull was supposed to yeah. do. What a way to start the show. I don't know if I'd call him a contender just yet, but he's in between prospect and contender, and he is mm. absolutely 100% a guy to watch at 135 pounds, as if we needed more young lightweights to, yeah. to factor in, right? Um one quick note about the card as a whole. Uh, this one was over in less than a minute. The whole card was four fights, 16 rounds total, and nobody was complaining uh, yeah. about, about not getting their money's worth. Knockouts are fun. There wasn't a dull moment on the card. Credit to the Showtime production team for doing 
minimal stalling and tap dancing. They mostly kept it moving, and uh, and we got to bed at a reasonable hour. Um, and one more reason for me not to complain, uh, I widened my lead in our picks competition ever so slightly. Uh, I was up 52-43. I got one extra point that you didn't by picking Cruz by knockout. Everything else came out even. I got seven points total for the card to six points for you. So I'm now ahead 59-49, and I don't want to tell you what to do, Kieran, but if you have a white flag... Might be time to waive it. Um, one final topic to discuss. This was the first boxing card in the United States since March to take place in front of a live crowd. Do you agree with me that it made a real difference hearing the cheers of even a relatively sparse crowd during the action? And how likely do you think it is that we'll be hearing such cheers more in the near future? Man, it sounded great, didn't mm-hmm. it? What? I mean, I'd honestly forgotten how much difference it makes. Uh I, th- I think I said how in the build-up to Lomachenko-Lopez, I was really yearning for that fight to have a crowd, but that once the fight got going, I'd almost forgotten that there wasn't one there. This reminded me, you know, what we've been missing. I mean, live sport just isn't live sport without a crowd. Um, and in a way, this showed the way forward, right? Take a, I think it's like about a 60,000-seat arena, put 10,000 people in there, space them out. But also, apparently, station the floor mics in such a way that it feels, sounds like they're more concentrated (laughs) and numerous. Um, And hopefully, you know, everything comes out well. Um, As for the near future, I don't know. The way the virus is raging now, it feels as if this was a brief window of opportunity that's about to close again. um, Or at least should close again. Uh, Europe's entering another lockdown. um, And... Look, I mean, in the U.S. wishes or should wish it was having a recurrence of the virus of the size that Europe is having. Um, even here in Vermont, cases are rising, or that means mm. 30 cases a day as opposed <laughs> to Wisconsin's 5,000 a day. Right. Um, it felt like the curtain was pulled back to allow us a glimpse of how things could be. And now it should be beginning close back up again, at least for a little while. Um, so we'll see. But look, this is meant to be, I think, probably a positive question. So, <laughs> um, yes, I will focus on the fact that this was a job extremely well done. The crowd really added to the atmosphere. Um, and the other thing is, like, unlike a lot of pay-per-view cars that we've been used to in the past, it felt as if the, the crowd was there from the very beginning. And yes. that's perhaps because of safety protocols or perhaps because everyone is so starved of live entertainment, <laughs> yeah. nobody wanted to miss anything, or perhaps some combination. Um, also, while focusing on the good things, I want to uh, support what you said there about the, the broadcast. I just thought it ticked along really well. I thought everybody did a really, really good job there. Um, and also, I want to acknowledge Tank Davis that even as he couldn't wear a mask, I'm really, I, I really liked that he thought to take the time out to pay tribute to Jose Santa Cruz. Yes. I thought... That was a very nice touch. Um, You and I have talked about him before and about our experience with him, that he feels like he's a young man who is trying to do the right thing, sometimes despite himself. Mm. Um, I thought that was a nice touch of class. Uh, I thought all the way around from from that and from the way he fought, this felt like this could have been a really nice like coming out moment slash turning point whatever for for Javante Davis all the way around. Yeah, hopefully. We talked about his one moment of frustration where uh he, he lost his cool for for just a moment there. That's sort of the thing with with Gervonta. It's there are the two sides of him, but it did feel on this night like the good side seems to be winning for now and that's uh, hopefully something we'll be seeing more of. Yeah. Obviously, the Showtime pay-per-view was the big event of the weekend, but it was far from the only in-ring action. There are plenty of other fights to discuss, and we begin in Indio, California, and the Fantasy Springs Resort and Casino, where on Friday, Jaime Munguia scored a TKO win over Toriano Johnson after six rounds. It was a good action fight, very competitive, with both men having their moments until late in the sixth, a Munguia uppercut. What is it with uppercuts this year? Uh, (laughs) A Munguia uppercut opened a horrendous cut on Johnson's lip. The ringside physician checked it and allowed the fight to continue until the end of the round, but the bout was stopped almost immediately afterward. With the win, Munguia moves to 36-0 with 29 KOs. Johnson drops to 21-3-1 with 15 knockouts. Munguia is also now 2-0 as a middleweight. So, Kieran, what did we learn about his prospects at 160 pounds? So I feel like it showed us first that, as we expected, um, he's 
going to find himself getting pushed back and hit harder a lot more at 160 than he did at 154. But I feel like it also showed us that he's more than capable of digging in and dishing it back out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows how this fight would have ended if not for that freak injury. And it wasn't so much as a cut as a canyon, was it? I mean, it was holy cow. I mean, that looked really, <laughs> really painful. And I can't imagine what Toriano Johnson is going through two days later as he tries to eat. Um, I, I thought the fight was quite evenly poised at, at the time it stopped, uh, as we suspected it would be. Um, you know, we said last week, Johnson's no pushover and he was fighting exactly the kind of fight that he likes to fight rough, tough, plenty of pressure. But I thought full credit to Munguia, actually, I thought he shows good hand speed and punch variety. He took what Johnson had to offer, proved equal to the task. Um, he's still young. He's still a work in progress. He still isn't ready for the best in the division. But I will say, I feel like he's progressing better than I thought he would. And he's showing more versatility, I think, than I expected from him when he was just a bully at 154. Like, he was Mm -hmm. fun at 154, but he was just imposing himself physically. And I I almost wonder now if moving up might actually prove good for him and that he has no choice but to develop his game Hmm. because he can't just bowl guys over. He's going to have to find those extra elements to, to, to his game. And yet he's still also big enough and strong enough to do damage. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I was impressed with this performance in that he was in there with a real opponent. The work was not easy. He was under some pressure and he responded well. And he actually seemed to me to be starting to take over just before mm. it ended. Um, so as maybe an unfortunate anticlimax that it ended the way it did for, from his perspective. To me, this was probably Mungia's best win since the Saddam Ali fight. Yeah. And a good step for him on the road to eventually getting smashed for big money by Canelo Alvarez, which is <laughs> where we all know this is headed eventually. <laughs> which is everyone's goal, right. basically. <laughs> all right, the uh, following night, that was Friday night, the following night, we moved slightly east to the MGM Grand Bubble in Las Vegas. Uh, Nooya Inoue returned to action with a seventh-round knockout of Jason Maloney. Uh, social media was a buzz almost simultaneously with tweets about Inoue and Javante's performances. Uh, Inoue's ending just a little bit before Davis Santa Cruz ended. Um... Those who didn't order the pay-per-view were commenting on on the ESPN top rank card. Um, in a way, it came in with a pretty high stock. Uh, did he do as much to raise his as Davis did on Saturday night, do you think? No, I, I'd say that would be a reach since Gervonta beat a much higher caliber of opponent mm. with a much more replay-worthy knockout. Um, now, if, you know, a Maloney had been on ESPN instead of ESPN+, Plus, uh, you know, say it had gotten an audience even half as big as Lomachenko Lopez, then yeah, it does wonders for NOE. But on ESPN Plus, you still had to seek it out. This fight was mostly only seen by the hardcore boxing fans. That said, a friend of mine, or at least a longtime friendly acquaintance of mine, a noted professional gambler from Vegas named Blair Rodman, uh, sent me a message saying, I don't watch much boxing, but Inoue looks really special. Uh, Mm. So among those who did watch, heads were turned. Maloney was game and solid. He was a great opponent, just good enough to bring out the best in Inoue, just ordinary enough not to threaten Inoue or prevent him from showing off all that he can do. It really did turn out to be a showcase for all of Inoue's skill and talent. And what really jumped out at me was his footwork. It is pinpoint perfect. There is no wasted motion at all. He moves so expertly directly to the spot he wants to be and and makes it look effortless. Um, One thing to point out here, top rank, ESPN, Inoue's Japanese handlers, they're doing a good job getting him to America at the right time. And I know he Mm -hmm. fought fought in America once before, you know, in 2017. This wasn't his U.S. debut, but it felt like a re-debut a bit. Uh, And the sad truth is, that he isn't going to be taken seriously for the pound-for-pound title by much of the American media until he's fighting regularly here. Just think back to how few people had Chocolatito in their top three or four back when he was really in his prime. Then he comes to America, fights on HBO a couple of times, and the secret is out. So that should be the goal with Inoue. Make sure he isn't a secret. Keep pushing him out there. He's 27 years old. He should become a real global star over the next few years if they do it right. Uh, So that was in Vegas and continuing farther east, all the way to England, 
Oleksandr Usyk got through his biggest challenge, uh, both literally and figuratively, uh, so far, overcoming a 39-pound difference and a couple of shaky early rounds to score a unanimous decision over Derek Chisora by scores of 117-112 and 115-113 twice. We mentioned earlier that Jaime Munguia is now 2-0 as a middleweight. Usyk is now 2-0 as a heavyweight, and he affirmed afterward that his goal is not just to be a heavyweight champion, but the undisputed world heavyweight champion. Kieran, how did you score the fight, and do you feel any more optimistic or pessimistic about the likelihood of Usyk achieving that lofty goal after his outing against Chisora? Uh, I had it wider than the ringside judges. I had it 17-11 for Usyk. Hmm. I, I thought after the first four rounds, I didn't think it was close, actually. Um, but I went through various stages of the feels about Usyk as a heavyweight. Um, early on, I was concerned that the experiment might not end well. Uh, at the end of uh, round eight, when he seemed on the verge of scoring a stoppage, I thought, well, maybe this could go very well indeed. Uh, and at the end, I'm kind of in between. Um on the one hand, I think he looked in bigger trouble early on than he really was. He, he didn't actually take a lot of punishment. He wasn't badly marked. But, you know, although he has quite good footwork when he's in the groove and he's on attack, he, he looks a bit ungainly when he's on the back foot. And I think, he, you know, he has his footwork's good, but he doesn't have very good upper body movement. And he's certainly not as smooth a mover as his buddy Vasily, of course. And, and I think that sometimes makes it look like he's doing worse than he is, especially when you see like a big 250 pound guy, like chasing after him and winging punches. Um, uh, on the other side of the coin, his punches don't look like they're heavy when they're hitting a bigger man, but they clearly sting because mm. they're fast. Um, he had Chisora hurt far more than Chisora had him hurt. Um, but he didn't go for the kill when he had the chance. And, and partly that's an understandable wariness of being caught by a 250-pound man's punches. And partly that's because how he fights. That's how he fought at a cruiserweight. Um, so I don't know. The fact is, this is an age of not just very large heavyweights, but actually very good heavyweights. Um, it's hard to see him do well against the likes of Joshua or Fury, not just because of their heft, but because of their length. You know, he, he relies on being able to slide in and out. And it's going to be hard for him to do that against against guys like that um he'd probably be the dog against white or Povetkin too and maybe even andy ruiz um you know he could have remained a dominant cruiserweight but you know like david hay and chris bird and evander holyfield and others he, he calculated that greater riches and glory would be had at the higher weight mm, i'm not one to begrudge him that um i'm not writing him off but like i said this is an era of good and big heavyweights and it will be tough for him. Yeah. Although I would say to those who are souring on Usyk's chances at heavyweight after this struggle, uh, I'll remind you that Evander Holyfield went to hell and back against Michael Dokes, uh, who I'd say was roughly the Derek Chisora of the heavyweight division at that moment. And the response from a lot of people was, well, that, that was fun, but, Holyfield is toast if he ever fights Mike Tyson. Um, mm-hmm. So let's wait. I think Usyk can continue to elevate his game as he gets used to fighting heavyweights. Um, and he, he mostly beat Chisora by enduring a few tough rounds, waiting for Chisora to tire, and then outspeeding and outboxing and outworking him. And while Anthony Joshua is definitely bigger and better than Chisora, he does tend to get tired. Mm-hmm. I have an easier time than you seem to seeing Usyk finding success against AJ. Um, not that I'd pick him to win, uh, but right. I, I, I see the path there for him. The thing that I totally agree with you on is I can't see any way Usyk beats Tyson Fury. No. Pretty much anything Usyk can do, Fury can do bigger and better. But to me, against anyone else in the division, even though some questions were raised here against Chisora, I still see Usyk as pretty much a live dog against anybody else, anybody other than Tyson Fury. Okay. We should, we should say, I'm looking forward to seeing how he does. I, I love Usyk. Um, but yeah, it's going to, it's, it, it will be a challenge. It'll be interesting. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see that he's, he gave himself a score of three out of 10, which I think was harsh. Right. Yeah, no, it, it certainly was better than that, but he will have to be better uh, yeah. as he steps up to that next level above Chisora. Indeed. Um, so somebody who didn't get to fight on that Usyk Chisora card was Dave the White Rhino Allen. Um, he had initially been slated to take on Christian Hammer until Hammer tested positive for COVID. So then he was all set to face uh, Christopher Lovejoy, which doesn't sounds like a star of a BBC detective show <laughs> rather than a 
boxer, but anyway. Or, or a cartoon reverend, perhaps. <laughs> ah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the last minute, that fell through because it turned out that a few years ago, Lovejoy had signed an agreement with Don King. Um, so according to Lovejoy, that agreement called for King to provide Lovejoy with a certain number of fights per year, which he didn't do, unsurprisingly. So Lovejoy assumed the agreement no longer stood, which clearly was not DK's impers- uh, impression of the situation. Uh, the I bring this up not because this is a significant fight that fell through, but because the question that it raises for me is, people still sign with Don King? <laughs> yeah, uh, that is uh, out of left field. I was not expecting Don King's name to come up ever again, really. Um, but, uh, of course, when it does come up, it's because he's finding ways to stop fights from happening. Uh, you know, whenever Don King dies, uh, and he might not, he might be a vampire for all we know, <laughs> but if and when he dies... I have no doubt he will still be preventing fights and derailing boxers' careers from beyond the grave. Yeah, seriously. Um, another fight that won't be happening, at least not yet, is Michael Conlon against Isaac Dogbay, which had been penciled in for the undercard of Tyson Fury's next outing. Conlon announced on Friday with a photo of his grotesquely swollen ankle that he had suffered an injury, a ruptured ligament, and would be out for 8 to 12 weeks as he's now on crutches and in a boot. Put your disappointment on a scale of 1 to 10 for me, Kieran. How, how bummed are you about this one being off for now? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is for now. It's 6. I mean, I was, they definitely got a, aww, from me. <laughs> okay, that sounds like um, a 6, yeah. Yeah, right, uh, because I thought it was a good matchup. I definitely, I mean, the only reason it's not more than that is there's good reason to think it might yet happen. You know, uh, it's right. not. It hasn't fallen apart for contractual reasons. It's fighters get hurt. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, it could still happen. I, I I really liked it as a matchup, and I still do like it as a matchup. Um, Dog Bay was on a real tear until he ran into Emmanuel Navarrete. Um, and I still don't know how good Conlon is and whether he's, you know, worthy of the hype. But he does appear to me to be improving substantially with each fight. Uh, but look, so hopefully, you know, he said he's out completely. I think... Does that mean he was out from like training for eight to twelve weeks? Uh, I'm I'm not or just won't be able to fight for eight to twelve weeks based on the injury. He's probably just got to put the foot up for eight to twelve weeks would be my guess. Um, so hopefully that means he'll be back in training in a few, you know, after Christmas, and we'll be able to see this matchup maybe sometime in the spring. I hope we still get to see the matchup because yeah. I I think it's a cracking one and a good a good fight at the right time for both men. I think. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, this was slated for the Tyson Fury card. That card was originally slated for December 5th, but it won't feature Tyson Fury against Deontay Wilder, as we know and have previously discussed. Guess who previously had been quite quiet about it, but is now making it clear how unhappy he is about that situation. Yep, Deontay Wilder. Um, we haven't heard much from him since the immediate aftermath of his loss to Fury earlier this year. He lost. He initially tried to blame on his ringwalk costume being too heavy. We thought at the time, boy, how much more embarrassing can I get than saying that? Well, <laughs> hold my beer, says Deontay. Um, in a video he posted to social media on Saturday, Wilder quoted some Bible verses, denigrated former trainer Mark Breland as unfaithful, Dismissed Kenny Bayless, the referee, during his last fury. And this is absolutely the first time I've heard this used as an insult. A dismissed Kenny as a crap in the bucket referee. <laughs> and then accused Fury of loading his glove with some kind of egg-sized object that, quote, left a dent in my head. Um, and he wasn't even fully done there. But that was where he went with that video. Uh, he, he also said, like, the only way that he could have gotten the cut on his ear that he got was if Fury had messed with the glove. The glove. I mean, it's just... Eric, what the hell is up with Deontay <laughs> Wilder, I guess, is my question. Yes. And would he be better off being quiet again? So I wrote a whole column for Ringside Seat magazine a couple of months ago about Wilder's excuse-making and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, because there is some upside right. to having unwavering confidence in yourself and, and believing right. that there has to be some good reason if somebody defeats you. But at a certain point, it looks less like unwavering confidence and more like a disconnect from reality. We've seen a lot of pretzel logic in the world of late people twisting and contorting (laughs) themselves to convince themselves of something far-fetched when the simple and obvious explanation will do. And uh, yeah, Wilder is trying way too hard to explain a single loss. 
and he just doesn't sound right in the head to me. Uh, he doesn't, does he? Actually. No. And he uh, apparently added separately that he thinks Breland might have spiked his water. Uh, come on. I, I'm concerned. I, I'm really concerned about Wilder now. I hope we're not entering Jermaine Taylor territory. Yeah. Where the guy's mental health became compromised at a certain point. I hate to speculate about this sort of thing, but when I watched that video Wilder put out, my reaction was to be worried that he's not in his right mind right now. I would yeah. hope the commission, wherever he fights, is a good one that puts him through a thorough battery of tests. As um, this this goes beyond uh, a step beyond the brash, eccentric personality Wilder had previously shown. This was almost like a prime Mick Foley mankind interview, uh, which, you know, that's fine in wrestling. It's a little worrying in boxing. Yeah. Yeah. It is that, I mean, at the best of times, it is that fascinating mental balancing act that boxers have to go through to convince themselves they're simultaneously unbeatable, yet also have to be concerned that they might lose to the person they're about to be in the ring with. It's just that fascinating kind of thing. And to acknowledge that, okay, I did get beat, but also rationalize it. This was something else. And this is still something else because it's eight months now. So, yeah, indeed. All right. On a final note, uh, a news item that could so easily have been tragic, but fortunately is not. According to ESPN's Mark Kriegel, junior welterweight contender Alex Saucedo suffered two brain bleeds during his loss to Arnold Barboza Jr. on the undercard of Teofimo Lopez Vasily Lomachenko two weeks ago. Saucedo spent three nights in the hospital in Las Vegas after the fight as the bleeds were treated. He told Kriegel, quote, I've never saw another fighter come out alive after one of these, but if I get hit again, I might not be able to talk about it. My career is done, but I'm happy to be alive, end quote. Saucedo, one of the most consistently exciting fighters out there during his brief career, retires with a record of 30 and 2, 19 KOs. Kieran, any thoughts? I suspect there are a few people in the world right now who appreciate seeing the sunrise in the morning quite as much as Alex Saucedo. Mm-hmm. Um, what a reminder, you know, and, and I mean, Deontay's another one. What a reminder of what an absurdly dangerous sport this is um, and of the risks we ask these men and women to take for our entertainment. And boy, how close to disaster and debilitation so many of them skirt. Um, and it's also an excellent illustration that it isn't just the completely one-sided beatings that result in tragedy or, or near tragedy. Um Pretty much everything in the world is utterly shit right now. And (laughs) the fact that Alex Orsido is alive and able to hug his daughters every day has filled me with a disproportionate joy Mm. over the weekend, I must say. So congratulations to him on a a really very good career Mm -hmm. and on being able to get out alive and on being able to hug his daughters and all the very best to him in the future. Absolutely. All right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks for listening during our busy pay-per-view preview week. Um, we will be back next week as we look back on this coming weekend's fights on Zone and Fox as Devin Haney takes on Yuri Orkis Gamboa and we see the return of Luis Ortiz. And we look ahead also to the return of Terence Crawford against Kelbro. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.